morning, everybody. It is January 5th, 2024. Happy New Year to everybody. Today for Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, I am joined by Dr. Matthew Martinez, who practices out of the Atlantic Health System, Mars, I always call it Marstown Memorial because I'm old school, Marstown Hospital Center here in New Jersey. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What a great way to start 2024. Here we go. Got a lot to do this year. I think my, my motto for the the year is to be a little bit more organized, a little bit more strategic, and a little bit more focused on our few year out goals. This year on Tales from the Heart, we are now going into what we're referring to as season four, even though we've been doing this for like four and a half years. So this is season four officially, and we're episode one, season four for those tracking. There's going to be some other podcasts through the year. So we have some standing appointments with your favorite HCM docs from around the country, old school, new school. So Harry Lever will still be with us uh, once a quarter. Marty Marin, Steve Amon will be with us um, either monthly or every other month. But we're going to be bringing a lot more faces of HCM care and management to the forefront in a one-hour format of our podcast. So we're starting the year with Dr. Matt Martinez, good friend, local, even though he's in Pennsylvania right now. We're going to have different conversations with different key opinion leaders in HCM to ensure that all perspectives are being heard from and that we're getting robust information out to the community. Additionally, there will be two shorter podcasts, not live, but they'll be dropped about once a week. Uh, One will be a patient story typically. One might be a member of industry or a physician who's just published a paper. We'll do a 30-minute dive onto that paper. It may be people from industry coming in to talk to us about a clinical trial or a new concept or an issue of legislative concern. So there's going to be more conversations. If you are a patient and want to share your story in podcast form, reach out to Julie Russo at the HCMA at julie at 4hcm.org. You'll do a volunteer intake. You'll do a share your story intake and we'll see when we can schedule your story to be shared. It's critically important that we share all the voices and all the faces of HCM so that people really understand what our community is, who we are, and what we're trying to, what problems we're trying to solve. That's my 2024 like kickoff as to what we're hoping to accomplish this year. So Matt, it's been a wild two and a half, three years in the HCM community. I feel like we kind of skidded out of 2023 going, wow, all those changes. And then you get like a, a, a weekend off and it's like, okay, now reposition yourself for 24. What's coming? We've said this before, right? Has there ever been a better time to be an HCM patient or an HCM doctor taking care of this incredibly engaged population? And what's amazing is that if you look ahead to 2024, it seems to be looking better still. So 2023, we saw lots of good research. Lots of things came out. We heard about uh, the end. We heard about Valor. We heard about now growing sort of clinical utility of of how we're using cardiac myosin inhibitors. And then it ended the year with some top line data from Sequoia telling us there's another one coming. And we knew it was coming, but, but great to see that top line data. And then in 2024, it's still going, but now we're changing gears a little bit. So there's more data. I think we need more input from or more detail for Sequoia for obstructive HCM. And then we're going to move into non-obstructive HCM. Thank goodness, where we need some therapies. We need some data. We need some some more ways to help folks. And we're going to get that both from Mavicampton and we're going to get that both from uh, Afficampton, right? Both that are actively enrolling. We're sites for both of those. Uh, we're going to get beta blocker versus Mavicampton. Nothing more exciting to me. We were just talking about this, you and I. How important is it to have the beta blocker dialed all the way up? Or maybe it's more important 
given side effects and potential harms with beta blocker, maybe it should be going back down again. And we're going to learn about that from Maple. Uh, the Discover is sort of a real world trial registry, 1500 patients once we can get all that sort of stuff sorted out. And then what we, what really I've been waiting for is this pediatric group. Boy, we got two peds studies coming, one for Afficampton, one for Mavicampton in the next three to six months. I couldn't be more excited to learn about the value of this in this 12 to 18 year old group who has obstruction and symptoms and what's it going to do in that young group, we're going to see a real reduction in LV wall thickness. That, that's just to name a few things, right? And we didn't even get to genetics yet. Agreed. We didn't even talk about the ultra cool stuff. So I think myosin inhibitors are pretty cool. And, you know, if you go back, there's been so much that has just happened in the past month and a half or so. And, and I'm going to kind of cue some people into some things that are going to be happening. Think about drug discovery or device development or therapeutic development because genetics is not a drug, drugs are not devices, but there's all these different mechanisms to treat the HCM heart now. We haven't proven them all to be efficacious at this point. Yep. We're, we're still working on that, but the, but the way our minds are now working and the way we are thinking about the heart muscle and the way we are thinking about root cause rather than blanketing symptoms, it's, it's a game changer. And for people who are sitting on the sidelines saying, yeah, I have HCM and maybe I don't feel perfect, but I don't like the side effects of certain drugs, so I'm not going to go talk about it. Please get back into the office and talk about your options. There's just yeah. so much going on. You know, October, we saw the first gene therapy delivered into an HCM patient. We don't know what the outcomes are and more patients are going to get dosed in 24. And maybe this time next year, we'll have some really exciting data to share on that as we just heard about the Sequoia data. And I came in on this podcast at the last second because I was in a call with Saito going over that top line data in a little bit more detail. It looks great. I'm gonna piggyback on that a little bit because you, you said it really nicely. So you might be a patient who says, I'm pretty stable. I like the therapy I'm on. I'm not gonna do anything different. I would encourage you to do what you just said, which is when you go into your provider, your doctor, you're going to talk to your HCM expert or your clinical cardiologist, the one that follows you more regularly. And you might say to them, hey, tell me about these new drugs. Am I a candidate? Should I be a candidate? Should I be thinking about research? How does this affect my kids? What's the role of the genetics? Because we're really just scratching the surface. So I have a patient that was enrolled in some clinical trials with us for non-obstructive HCM, and we're not involved in the genetic, the first therapy that we're giving to human beings right now for, for genetic therapies with Tanaya. So what did I do? I referred her somewhere else. I said, where do you live? Let's get you organized. Let's find the group near there. And I got them connected because it's an opportunity to try and engage the entire community, not just your little nest egg, but try and deliver this across across these silos that we think are being broken down better than ever. That's another great point that, that I want to make sure people understand. So the HCMA Center of Excellence Network We've now got 50 programs or thereabouts. Actually, we lost one on January 1st. University of Maryland is now sunsetted, unfortunately. Uh, if you are a patient at University of Maryland's HCM program and you need to get aligned with a new physician, please give us a call. We'll be happy to set you up. It's unfortunate that Libin has now moved to Boston, but programs do come and go for different reasons. So we have 20 in pipeline right now. And one of the magical parts about these centers is 
they work together in many, many cases. More often than not, they're working in a complementary fashion and sharing patients and referring, oh, you're doing that trial, I'm doing this trial, let's swap patients for that because I've got the right person for you and I think they're gonna benefit, but I'm not in that trial, that's okay. That's okay. We have really worked to build a collaborative community of providers and patients. It's bringing them both together. And look how well that's worked for clinical trial enrollment, for new drug development, for optimizing patient management. And, and people move, right? They, they move. And I think with the with cardiac myosin inhibitors, we now know more than ever, we have to be collaborative. I mean, you and I are both in the Northeast. Lots of folks go down South for the for the for the winter, so so I, I, I someday I hope to be doing the same, but I'm not. But for now, I have a Florida license, so I'm happy to help see the patients. But I can't get imaging. I can't make them fly up for an echo. Let's find you a center of excellence down there. We can get you connected with, and make sure that you're still getting the care that we can still continue the 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 Mavicampton so that you can continue to see the benefits even when you're in Florida, even if I'm jealous you're there. <laughs> and my sister turned into one of those snowbirds and I think she's more she's more she's more a snow and spring bird now and she's doing more so I, I, I'm envious of her down in the Florida Keys I got to go visit her anyway Florida aside we need to make sure that patients stay in the highest level care possible because yeah. while HCM sounds like it's better understood by the masses because you see TV commercials now it still doesn't mean that the community cardiologist is up to the game of identifying all of the variables within HCM that make us so complex. It does not take away the value of a center of excellence. And in fact, I think it does the opposite and it explains why it's even more important. You don't want some doctor who just wants to try the new tool in the toolbox on you. You want somebody who has spent their, their career focused on this disease state who is the right patient and really understanding the data and your idiosyncrasies as an HCM patient. So I think it's doubling down on why we're building what we're building. And I think you've been doing this a long time, right? And building these processes where folks can come in, see the center of excellence, and then still maintain a great relationship with their primary cardiologist, which is, I still think the model going forward, I think we have to get better at it. I think we have, we, the the, card, the cardiologist side, the primary care docs have to get better at creating a better wheel and spoke model. I think cardiac myosin inhibitors are going to require us to do that. And, and we're doing it better than we were two years ago, but we've got some work to do. That's for sure. I think we do. So thinking from the patient's point of view for a moment, let's kind of pivot this. As a patient starts a new year, the first thought most patients have is, okay, I get to start my deductible again. <laughs> Which kind of sucks. And that's a whole issue for healthcare reform that we also need to address. We shouldn't have to go into debt every year to get our screenings. Um, well, that, that's a little bit of a bigger assignment. But in, in today's world, as we hit to January and somebody's thinking, okay, what are the things that I have to do this year? What should the average HCM patient be thinking I need to do this year for my heart and for my family? It's a, an opportunity, depending on your age, to decide, you know, there's some leeway with this. You don't, you're not required to see the HCM expert every single year. And that depends on your age. That depends on your disease process and, and all about you. Hopefully your center of excellence has talked to you about that. I usually tell them it's every year or two. And sometimes I'll say things are really stable. You're 60 something years old. Nothing's changed. Changed, but there are some staples, right? You need an imaging study. 
You have to make sure that you're still being risk stratified by monitoring. It might be time for your MRI, right? And you want to plan for that. We know that we don't need an MRI every single year, but we know that repeat MRIs in the three to five year range are important. So that's part one. Part two is to make sure that your family is up to date that this still comes up a fair amount. Even with really long-term patients of mine, I have to remind them, they say, well, you know, my son was screened, he's, he's good. I said, well, when was it, right? It's not a once and done, there's follow-up for this. And then do you wanna revisit genetic testing, right? If you've not had it done before, or if you've done it before, is there value in repeating it? Where was it done? I think there's some opportunities to revisit risk stratification, annual routine imaging. Do I need any of the of the non-routine imaging repeated, and then how am I handling my family, for sure. Lastly, I think it's an opportunity to talk about these trials, right? So should, am I a trial? Should I be enrolling in these trials? We have been waiting for this, Lisa, and you know this better than I do. You know me before I was even a physician, right? When I was a medical student, we've been waiting for this opportunity to have all of these multiple trials. I now have a, I have a whiteboard in my office now that I have all seven or eight of the trials that we're, in, we're engaged in so I can keep track before I go into a patient's room. Okay, they're a candidate for the following. So I think it's really important for the patient community to respond as well. Ask your doctor, hey, am I a candidate for, for these trials? Can I be engaged? Can I be involved or not? You just gave me an idea. I'm going to work on a 2024 clinical trial checklist to make sure that they're in every center and you have a little tear sheet. And then you can, if you're not a site, if somebody's interested, they can refer. Ross, make a note of that. Um, off to Olivia. So I think that would be great. We have the tear sheets that explain the disease. If we could have a tear sheet that explains current trials, I think that would be great. And I think this is the time to say to yourself, okay, what are my time commitments this year? What can I do? To help myself, to help my family, maybe to help the community. You know, when you do a clinical trial, there's no guarantee that you're going to seek a benefit from it. But even if you don't individually get a benefit, the community gets the benefit of knowledge. So if you're at all thinking, this is a great time to think, we may actually get to a point within our little community where we get a little fatigue on trials. Yeah. So we want people to look at what's available and to make the right choice for them. There is a time commitment. We wanna make sure that you can meet that. We are trying to work with trial coordinators to make it as easy as possible for us to get you into a trial, to handshake you over to the center, for them to onboard you, for them to explain the trial, you to choose to engage. But like silly things that we're asking trial companies to do, and I say silly, but they're, they're impediments. Babysitting services. Will they pay for a babysitter or an elder care sitter or a dog walker? Will they do evenings or weekend appointments? How can they make it easier for participation? And these are things that we've been talking to industry about for 15 years. And the good news is we're starting to see traction in some of these things. Yeah. Evening appointment, weekend appointment, you know, reimbursement for daycare, childcare, elder care, these types of things. So we know it's hard. And when we get into this next group, which the official trials have not been publicized yet, and we're not 100% through the FDA on these approvals for the, the PEDS programs. But my goal and your goal is to make sure that we can treat people as early as possible yep. and maybe alter the course of the disease for the better. Yeah. So we've got to get these kids involved in these trials, which that's a whole other level of decision-making for a parent. It's hard enough to choose to go into clinical trial for yourself. A little harder to make the decision for your child. We get it. But go to somebody you really trust. 
Yeah, and it's an opportunity if you're um, in the diversity and inclusion hat on, we need better representation. It can't only be 56-year-old, 60-year-old white men and women throughout the country. We need better diversity so we can speak to that group when we start to talk about clinical care, that we actually have data that reflects the group that they look like. Thank you for that. And yes, with multiple explanation points behind it. So year end, I go over and I look at analytics, I look at our social, I look at our database, I look at what we're hitting and, and where we're doing really well and where we need to do better. Interestingly, women, like I speak very well to women my age, plus or minus 10, 10 years. That's what the HCMA, that's our hotspot. 35 to 65 year old women, they are in, they get it, they're following. Um, the younger, um, either gender, um, and men were getting a little bit better traction in the 45 to 55 year old range, but the ethnic breakdowns are not representative of the country. So we are working on strategies to analyze how to get to these communities better, how to communicate in a more effective way. We've brought in our ambassadors. Our ambassadors are from every walk of life possible so that we can show the true faces of HCM. So if you are in the black, brown, Asian, community, uh, Native American community, and you have HCM and you want to share your story, we want to amplify that story. We want to make sure that your communities are seen and that others see that there is a path to feeling better and that they are not alone out there, that they do belong to a larger community where we all share heart. So I think out of all of the things that we're moving towards as, as an organization, the idea of getting better, better inclusion of all stakeholders is critically important. We can't help if you don't let us in and, and we don't know how to get in if we don't know how to get there. So we need to work with the thought leaders in those areas. And I'm truly hoping that we can get some real passion behind our All Hearts Collaborative so that we can work with um, the Black Church community to raise awareness about HCM, amyloidosis and hypertension. And, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there that need to be found and we have to find them all. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Young, old, every ethnicity. So what are you most excited about in 2024? I, I have to put a plug in. Right. We've talked about research, but from the 2024 guideline is exciting. Right. It, it is, as you know, it, it was hard for you to get it done when it originally started. And then we got an update in 2020. And now we have a 2024 guideline that we know is coming out in the next three or four months or so that uh, is going to be another uplift. And, and it reflects, I think, some of the growth in the community. So I'm excited to see how that creates some more buzz for this community and shows us the gaps. Right. What the guidelines show us is best best practices, but it also shows us gaps, right? It shows us where, where we need to do better. And I think the, the concept of guidelines is is changing a little bit. I mean, it's guidance. Yeah. A good starting point. You know, in 2011, when the first one came out, I'm like, oh, big, big hole, big hole, big hole. And we started to fill in those holes in 2020. And hopefully we evolve as we go to 2020 for whatever year it's gonna be published. But additionally to that, I think we're seeing the realization that HCM patients need more than cardiac care. It is bigger than their heart, it's their life. And I'm hoping in the coming years, we start to integrate some concepts that have worked in other chronic disease states or other cancer communities that 
this is a journey. You, you don't just get your diagnosis, get a cure and move on. This is a lifelong journey yeah. that has lots of different tentacles. There are physical burdens, there are economic burdens, there are family burdens, there are emotional burdens, there is grief on multiple levels. And we're trying to fill the gaps of the rest of life with HCM while the cardiologists are focused very clearly on making this heart function as normally as possible, great, but it impacts the rest of our life. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't, you said it perfectly and it's something we often forget about. So I try and bring up exercise every time folks come in and and we talk about it in terms of overall cardiovascular health, whether you're 18 or whether you're 65 or 70 or or somewhere in between, exercise is important for all of the other comorbidities, which is sort of what you're getting to. Is this obesity? I have referred more folks to our metabolic program to handle their obesity and all that goes into that. How does it affect high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, CAD risk factors, and CAD development is, as you say, HCM falls into the background a bit. It's never gone, but the other things all need to be addressed. Mental health is a big deal. Big deal, I think, nationwide in general, but I think in this community, I don't have to explain this to this audience where there's burdens of what did I give my kids? What did my mom and dad give me? What's the stressors that about doing genes, not doing genes? Am I gonna develop obstruction over time? Am I ever gonna need a transplant? All those burdens of folks are a big deal. So I try and get into that too uh, with patients with mental health, but we need to do a better job as a, as a community with allowing some easier opportunities to get folks chances to talk about that. And then pregnancy. How do we handle the gene testing and what it means for your future offspring? Is there a role for reproductive endocrinology in this as a regular uh, on a regular basis? I know you know this, but it's phenomenal, right? When you say this to an 18-year-old, hey, look, finding the gene has a whole bunch of positives to it. And these are the things that we know you can now do with that. And then a reminder that it's going to have a big impact on on who gets treated with genetic therapies, right? We're focused on MYBPC3, I think, right now. But knowing what your gene is is going to have even more value probably than ever before. Amen. Couldn't agree more. There are some other health equity issues that we haven't talked about a lot in the HCM community. And pregnancy is one, but menopause is the other. Not every woman will have a child, but every woman will go through menopause. (laughs) And there are variations of things that happen to your entire metabolic system during that change that does impact your heart. And I can't help but notice a lot of my transplant participants in in our pathway group, we meet twice a month now, they're mostly women and they're middle-aged and they're just entering menopause as their hearts fail. There's gotta be something there as to the why they're the ones that are failing at that earlier point. So we need to understand how a woman's body works differently than a guy's. You know that little piece of that XXXY thing, that little piece you're missing, there's enough programming there for us to develop human beings, right? (laughs) right. There's a lot of information in that little piece that's missing. So it probably impacts our hearts differently too. Yeah, it's it's really well put. And a reminder, there's there's still so much work to be done. And you know, the CMIs are getting all the, the headlines right now. But to your point, I like that you're at least bringing it up because we need to talk about it so that patients can bring it up to us 
And then it becomes a pain point for us because we may not know the answer. And then we start to ask those really important questions, start to do some research on it. It's really important. It's interesting. I, I've been on this one for about 20 years. And finally, I, I have some people going, oh, now I understand why you're talking about this. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay. So I think we can do something there. Additionally, in the health equity issue, you know, we talked about what we need to do for kids. We talked about pregnancy. We talked about you talked about reproductive endocrinology, which I'm going to break down into some easier to understand language. And that's using IVF in vitro fertilization to select the proper embryos to implant through that IVF process. So everything's extracted from mom and dad. We develop baby in Petri dish. You grow out a couple of zygotes, so it's like 10 to 12 cells. A cell is pulled. It is evaluated if it carries the gene or not. It's not 100% effective because you're working with data from one gene. So it's like 90 plus percent, sure, but it's not 100. And um, you implant the embryos that don't carry the HCM mutation. That's, that's the way to stop disease in a family. If you were to do gene therapy, that's great for the individual, but it doesn't affect the offspring because the gene is changed in the individual, not in the reproductive system. So if you wanted to abolish HCM from your family using PGD and the IVF pathway to have the pregnancy and then potentially taking the gene therapy for the other individuals in the family, then you could actually abolish HCM in a family line. But gene therapy is not going to abolish it in the family line. I just want to be clear on that one. Yeah. And I love having this discussion with patients because it's, it's, a, it's another jaw dropper moment for them when they say, wait, I can do what? And again, they don't have to do it. It's a personal decision. You know, obviously, like everything else, this is a part of a discussion, a shared decision making discussion. But I love that they have the opportunity to at least think about it, right, that they can make their own choice. And the technology used to be cost prohibitive. Boy, it's come down quite a bit. So there's it's exciting. This is another area for advocacy. So if you were to stop and think about the cost of HCM management over a lifetime Agreed. or the cost of a genetic therapy, which is going to be expensive versus the cost of an IVF round for somebody who doesn't have an infertility issue. So your likelihood that they're going to hit on the first implant is pretty high. If we were to get insurance companies around the country to pay for IVF and gene selection, you could abolish HCM from the family line at a high degree of sensitivity for under hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Like once we have that logical conversation with payers, we might be able to convince them that, yeah, for these diseases, it, it should be reimbursed. This makes sense. It's cheaper. Yeah. And, and I think you're also seeing it even at the local level. Many employers are now covering this like they do an adoption. Mm -hmm. so you, it's an opportunity for them to dive into their own health care insurance. But what you're saying is right. If we can get it, us insurance companies to start to think about this as curative, as potentially eliminating benefit for them long term, I, I think that will change the way we think about it. I, I think we need to think longer term than a two year follow up on, you know, you're on a particular policy for one to two years on average, and then they don't really care about that past that. But if we all are being more preventative, 
the cost savings will go across all of the payer systems. And I think it reflects what's happening in HCM, right? We're moving away. I mean, there's been a lot of been a lot of shoulders that we're standing on to get where we are now, where we say, oh, it's pretty straightforward, right? We have to restratify you. We have to talk about therapies. The surgery is now better than ever. We've got, you know, not for everybody, but there are centers that can do this exceptionally well. And now we're going into that next level of how do we manage this and potentially eliminate it long term more excitement to come it is kind of cool I, I, I didn't think we'd be here quite this quickly but I also didn't think it would take this long I know that they're complete opposites but you kind of thought that maybe someday it'll all just come into focus and it is it, we are in a, a focusing moment yeah so you know you started with what you know what's most exciting for me for 2024 and I, I think I think it's the therapeutic options and I think it's a, it's a growth of centers of excellence and that wheel and spoke model that that I think is going to be a, a heavy focus for the next 12 to 24 months because it's clear that if you're a, a, a cardiologist a smart one who is taking really good care of patients it may be too difficult for you to initiate this this therapy as a starting place. But once they're stable, once we've gone through, these are your options, this is the therapy for you, you're going to stay on this. And of course, as the price comes down, we can then rotate this outward and then cardiologists are, are going to be expected to be able to follow this long term. Stability matters and and getting them on the right drug, the right patient, the right therapy. That'll probably start in a center of excellence and then eventually start to go outward. And then we have to be able to educate those clinical cardiologists about what to expect, what to expect. If they get an infection, expect challenges. If they get atrial fib, expect a challenge. These are these are the points where they, their antennas should go up and that might be the trigger to hit, say, okay, now you're stable. Maybe we ought to send you, send you back to the center of excellence. You develop atrial fib again. Let's have that repeat discussion. I think the co-management concept is going to be critical. Number one, there's more, we're busier than ever. Yeah. We're, we just went through our year-end numbers. Like some of our some of our metrics are up in the three to five hundred percent range. <laughs> like, wow. I'm like, how are we going to keep doing all the good work we're doing without losing quality to manage all these people? So that's where my mind has been the last couple of weeks is just amping up things and having that support and making sure our HCMA team is there to support the patient team. Like it's we've been doing a lot of internal work on that because there are more and more people. But centers have, you know, growth limits. You can't have 30,000 patients in your program, but realistically in the New York metro area, we're going to need to carry 30,000 HCM patients in the region. So between NYU and Columbia and Westchester and maybe Northwell's coming on and maybe this one, and we're going to need all of those specialists to be handling these patients and then going out to the community for the management long-term. You're going to be busy. Yeah, yeah. And then how do we create cardiologists that are well-versed in this? How do we create better fellowships? You know, we have a fellowship, as you know, and we think it's important to train elbow to elbow, but not everybody can do a full year of this. So how do we better incorporate this in three-month increments or six-month increments? And and then doing this with a center that has enough volume, right? If you go to a, a Cleveland, a Mayo, a Leahy, or a Morristown, we have thousands of patients. So in a three-month period, you're going to get a really good experience. But how do you incorporate that individual into that 
center, right? And, and then send them back to the community and say, off you go. The, the, and, and you, you again, create that wheel and spoke model. How do we do that for sonographers? How do we do it for cardiologists? How do we do it for active trainees? I think that's going to be exciting in 2024 because it's going to have to happen. It's going to have to happen. So I've been, I've been trying in my own ways to create different pathways and our board has gotten behind it. We started to uh, spend a lot of time on HCM Academy, which is professional education, but I have a little dream project that I've actually handed over to society for a formalized mentorship program, which is better seated with the society than the patient organization. But we have to operationalize that. We have to operationalize the educational process of developing the next generation of HCM specialists because we can't can't lose the momentum. And there's going to be a need, even if gene therapy is successful in myosin binding protein C, and even if we can use CRISPR technology to figure out MYH7, and even if we can maybe come up with gene therapies for the troponin mutations. That's number one, 10 years of discovery I'm talking about right there. And then you're going to have the gene not identified individuals who have the anatomy. And then there's this other group of people that we're going to start talking to and engaging a little bit more. And that's the HEFPEF group. So patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, HEFPEF, get used to the word. It's a terrible word. I don't like it, but it's what they call them. So they're kind of HCM-like people. They may or may not have positive genetics because we're not really gene testing HEFPEF people. Many of them are a combination of hypertension, diabetes, and obesity that lead to a stiff, thick heart, but not quite thick enough to be HCM. But maybe it is because maybe their body mass index is fooling us and we don't really know what their normals should be. So they have a lot of the same problems as the HCM community. They're not identified. They're not managed well. They feel forgotten. So we're going to start adding some educational content for the HEFPAF patient. And those HEFPAF patients may benefit from going into an HCM center, getting their HEFPAF worked out. Do they really belong in HEFPAF? Are they HCM, amyloid, sarcoid, fabrase, or are they HEFPAF? So think of HCMA as the thick heart disease program, taking care of all the big hearts and putting them in the right buckets. Yeah. That's all I got to do in the next 10 years. <laughs> well, and, and I think what you said is that the, you know, in some ways the, the water is getting clearer and it's getting muddier all at the same time, right? We we thought we had apical HCM or, or you know, non-obstructive HCM, this big bucket sorted out. And then you start to peel back that onion and you say, well, it's probably amyloid. That's probably Fabry. Maybe it's both. I, as you know, I have a couple of patients who have both, right? They have HCM long enough, they develop PTR amyloid. And how do we handle that group? Yeah, it's definitely getting more complicated. And by the way, as you and, and many others know, just because you have amyloid, just because you have Fabry, doesn't mean that you can't be obstructive as well. One more fooler, right? Where you've got obstructive, it looks like HCM, and then it turns out, oops, it's Fabry. Therapy, totally different. Outcomes, totally different. But we need to know the diagnosis. Genetics has become more and more important because that's what helps us tease out why this heart is thick. And I think we're going to be able to do more with it. I think it's an exciting time. I think I feel like I'm sometimes 
30 years too late or too early, I don't know. But if I could go back to my original diagnosis in around 1980 and say, wow, I wish I was born in the 2024 year because, you know, it, it wouldn't, my, my, my history wouldn't have been the same at all. Yeah. Having all of these options now, my daughter's history is is forever altered in the positive because of what we now know. There's there's a lot there's a lot to be done here. Yeah, and 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 thankfully you you were part of the early days of this because I know that you're saying I wish I was more now, but the reality is we're not here if you didn't do what you did for the last 30 plus and others, right? Standing on their shoulders, because we can see further. And thank goodness for all that. So, so I wanna take a moment as, as you come into New Year's and you think about new, 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 new. I, I wanna take a moment to go back for a minute. I explained this to somebody earlier today and, and I have to laugh that um, most of my HCM education, you may not even know this one, came via thermal pack fax paper from Barry Merritt. <laughs> He would just, it, Terry was his secretary at the time at Minneapolis Heart, and I would come into my, my office when I was still in HR, and I have a fax machine in my office, thermal paper that's dating me, and um, I'd have a new article from Barry Marin, and he'd say, read this, and we would catch up like two or three times a week at lunch. I would have my lunch, I'd have my new article, I'd have questions. He'd send me another article that would clarify those questions. This went on for months and months and months, years and years and years. And finally, one day I started asking him questions and he's like, I don't know, I don't know. I'm like, how could you not know? You're the man who knows everything. He's like, we don't, we have to do more research. And that was probably like 2000 when, when like I started asking him the questions that he didn't have the answers to. And I think of all we have learned in all of those years and all of those articles that so many wonderful people have given their time, attention, and talent to, to help us evolve our understanding. I wouldn't be where I am without Mary and a lot of other people wouldn't either. And I really appreciate what he gave to us and this massive step up so we could come out of the water and get on the dock and get a big view of the lake and see where we needed to go next. Yeah. So, you know, between what he gave, what Rick Nishimura gave, what Jamil Tajik, who is now retiring, gave, there's so many people who gave so much of their career to have us where we are today. And the really cool part about HCM today is, yes, it started with, you know, okay, it started with Brunwald. God bless Brunwald, you know, Eugene Brunwald, amazing person. And then you get to the Barry generation and the Jamil and the Harry Levers and the Mark Sherrits. And there were a lot of guy names back then. And now it's equal opportunity. We have female leaders in HCM genetics and in clinical care and in sports cardiology. We have so many women showing their chops here. And I'm so proud of all of them. Just a minute out for, you know, health equity. It starts with who's treating us. If the people who are treating us look like us in, in ethnicity, in gender, in age, in career state, we're going to connect better. So I couldn't agree more. I, I did cases with, with Barry early on and he would, I'd send him the PowerPoint slides. He would print them, write on them, fax them back to me. <laughs> I would make the change. When I was still with, with Nish at, at, at Mayo, he would, you know, redictate the entire change to any paper that we wrote. 
And, you know, Steve Amon was a medical student a few years ahead of me. So he and I lived through that where I would say, how do I get the changes back from Nish? And he'll say, well, he'll just dictate the whole paper again. You'll have to figure out where the changes are. He would do that in the car. And his secretary was amazing. And obviously, you know, Tajik um, is, was a, a big mentor for me above Nishimura. So that you, you said all the names for me that, that make me smile and have just reminded us of how far we've come. And, and I, you know, we talk about the therapies, you know, Tajik used to say well, it was really neat when we could finally see the heart. He talked about 2D echo when it first came out. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, we're into these advanced therapies and, and he, he was excited about when they could first see Sam, right? What they yep. knew what obstruction was. That was not that long ago. Pravin Shah who actually named Sam. I haven't talked to him in years. I wonder where he's at these days. But, you know, there's just so many really amazing people who gave their time and talent. And, you know, you got one thing in this world that we all have, and that's an amount of time. What you do with it, well, that says an awful lot. On my wall in my living room is my favorite quote from my favorite poem, Mary Oliver, a summer's day. Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. And if I ever forget, I stop and I remember. And it's because of what everybody else built that we're able to continue to build onto it. And it's it's going to take a village and it's not always going to be perfect. And it's kind of like a family. And sometimes you rumble and sometimes you want to go in a different direction, but we're going to stick together and we're going to keep fighting this fight together. And we're going to make the future better for families with HCM worldwide. That's amazing. And, and, and you saw this at the HCM society meeting uh, this past October where there were, I think maybe equal or more women speakers, including one of the co-chairs, right? So Charlene mm-hmm. ran that meeting. They've not announced next year's program chairs yet but i have a sneak suspicion i have a sneaking suspicion that one of them will be a name that is an expert she is a superstar but may not quite be a household name yet but will likely be in the coming years she's 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 going to be terrific so i I think you're going to see more of that as you say my own fellow is 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 a, a very bright young woman with a with a tremendous future who is going to help all of us learn more about about HCM. So all that representation, all that matters going forward. And, and I think you're going to see even more of that in the coming years. So two big educational events, Lisa, this year. Yes. Right? Can't yeah. forget them, right? Big one. We have the Olympics of HCM, right? <laughs> the, 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 uh, the soup to nuts HCM summit uh, back in Boston, Minneapolis for years, started by Barry Marin, right? We know that for a long, long time in, in Minneapolis. And now the torch continues with Steve Amon and Marty Marin in October with a patient advocacy add on to that. Do you want to be allowed to talk about that part? Yeah. So what's going to happen this year at the summit? It's going it's to be a little different. It's a little wild to get this all organized. But the HCM International Summit has its own agenda. It's a standalone meeting. We are supporting the summit in PR and in other support. That's Marty and Steve's meeting. Uh, Barry will be participating as well. I will be a speaker at that meeting, and we will be taking over Saturday night at the summit. 
So we're going to be having about two and a half hours of content, telling everybody about the work of the HCMA, bringing in some patient stories, having a little bit of fun, doing a little bit of education. And then on Sunday at the summit, there will be clinical trial rooms for patients in the morning. So you can go learn about clinical trials. And then as the summit ends, the HCMA annual meeting begins. So we have a 15 minute break. We flip the room, put up some other banners. It's a different meeting. We're going to piggyback on the meeting with the summit. So that'll be in October. I think it's October 27th, 28th, that weekend. And then a couple weeks before that, we will have HCM Society meeting tied in with the Heart Failure Society meeting in Atlanta. I will be in Atlanta a few times this year. So if you're in the Atlanta area, make sure we get together. So it's going to be two big professional meetings. We're going to hit a couple European meetings this year. HCMA International is growing. So we're going to be bringing on Brazil and we'll have 10 smaller organizations around Europe and South America signed in as partners by the end of the first quarter. So we're, we're, it just, it keeps growing. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and, and how exciting. Two giant meetings, back-to-back opportunities, right? Not every weekend works for everybody. So you got a chance to choose your own adventure. Are you going to go to Hotlanta or are you interested in crab cakes and you're headed to Boston, right? All of those play. It's certainly exciting. And the meetings are just enough different so that you're going to get a different flavor from one versus the other. I'm hoping that there's more hands-on stuff for both of them, for the, both the clinician as well as the, you know, the, the existing clinician and the ones that are trying to, you know, kind of dive into this new field. We have another interesting meeting coming up, not open to the public. It's a private meeting, but we'll be talking about it. And that's with the American Society of Echo in March in in, uh, New York. We're all going to be getting together to discuss better protocols for HCM echoes. I think this new tool from Moon's Group in uh, the UK of using BSA and gender to determine what normal heart wall measurement should be. We've got to figure out a way to validate that tool. It's only a research tool at this point, but use it more easily in our technology because humans are not all the same size and our hearts aren't supposed to be all the same size. So getting a little bit better understanding of what normal is and abnormal is, I think is going to be critical to identifying the undiagnosed as well. Agreed. Agreed. Certainly work to do still on diagnosis. As you know, we're missing many, 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 and we're missing them over and over, right? ECGs and echo findings that for the HCM expert are overt and fairly obvious are still somehow slipping by us in the, in the, in the everyday practice of cardiology. So a lot of focus on, on how that can happen. I think AI will play a role for both echo and, and, and ECG. But as you've mentioned for other therapies, it's not coming tomorrow. It's coming soon, maybe hopefully within the next five years, right? A lot of work going on in that space. And then finding the undiagnosed. So hold on to your hats, people. Heart month is coming. It's less than a month away. So HCMA is going to be incredibly active on social media. I'm asking you all to share, like, whatever, get these stories out there. There will be multiple storylines this year in social media. There will be patient stories. There will be clinical updates. There will be legislative updates. There will be different ways for you to get engaged all month long. And the easiest thing you can do is share the stories that we're going to be sharing all month. We are going to be focusing on different regions and different centers and doing media outreach for each center as well. But what we're trying to do 
and I've been quiet about this, but it's time to start getting really loud about it. Okay, drum roll. February 15th, the HCMA will for the first time ever have an independent meeting in Washington, D.C. in the Rayburn building of the Capitol. So we are going to do our first legislative briefing at the federal level. Love it. Which is like super duper cool. Our asks in a major election year are reasonable. So y'all have heard me talk about the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act wanting to use the same things that we use for student athletes to screen them for heart disease, use them in all well-child examinations. We're going forward on that on a state level initiative, but on the federal level, we wanna do the same thing with the Welcome to Medicare exam. Ask about family heart health history very specifically and in the same language that we're using for the well-child exam. So we can get the kiddos, we can get the grandparents, and by inference, we get the intermediate generation. So we're gonna be going down to talk about genetic heart disease on the Hill, and that'll be February 15th, which is not HCM Awareness Day. February uh, 28th is HCM Awareness Day, but this, the House and Senate are on break after the 16th, so they won't be on the Hill on our official day. So we're gonna do the Hill event on the 15th, and then we're going to do online state level legislative briefings on HCM Awareness Day during the day. And then at night, we're going to do a community event where we're going to talk about some of the highlights of the year, what's going on, where we've been and where we're going. So we encourage you all to sign up and join us for that night. Hint, hint, Matt, we're looking for TikTok videos from each of our centers so you guys can do some recording and send some shout outs because there's so many centers. We got to be brief and we're going to put them into a montage. So uh, have some fun with that one with your team. So we've got a lot planned for this year. We are going to do three in-person meetings. Uh, we're gonna continue the virtual tour as well. So you'll have virtual opportunities. We will be in Utah, definitely. We're gonna be in Cincinnati, Ohio, probably Northern California at some point. And I have three site visits to do on the West Coast. So we're gonna go out for probably 10 days. We're gonna be going from Alaska to Washington to LA and hopefully bring in three new centers on the West Coast shortly thereafter. Other than that, who knows what else the year has. Love it. And you know, I'll, I'll put a plug in for stuff that you know that we've worked on through through this all about education and all about increasing awareness and on you were a part of this through learn hcm free educational for for mostly the doc level right the provider level but certainly the patients can go on there well maybe the hcm community is maybe more educated than, than other communities in this so that they are certainly welcome to do this but on that now we've branched out into usable items. So there's some dot phrases on there we built and, and I sent them into you to, to potentially share where the dot phrases can help the patients know what should be talked about and also that the doctors can now put this into their notes so that we're all talking the same language so that when we go back and look at a database, when we go back and, and try and collect information that we're all using those same terms. It's got an exercise prescription in there. It's got an exercise poster for those who want to show this at their local schools because the more we can get this top 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 line front and center as you've done the last 20 plus years the i think the better it's going to be and then letting the local community have opportunities to steal best practices right using okay. those phrases from from other centers right 
Absolutely. Absolutely. The projects that have been going on with, you know, we're doing some work with ACC, with AHA to help elevate the voice of HCM. You know, they're big organizations. They handle a lot of different disease states. We're one, we're a small number, but we're there to help craft the message. We want to elevate everybody's voice. That's, you don't get forward in a nonprofit sector by competing against each other. You get forward and you make things better for more people by partnering strategically. We're looking forward to more of those collaborations going forward and they've been really great in the past. I wanna end the first segment of the year with a topic that I know both of us think a lot about. And after the annual meeting in October, when we talked about exercise and sports and HCM. And then I did a big hearted warrior tour on the same topic. And, you know, we're continuing to pull that out. I had an epiphany. I think I shared parts of it with you, but I, I just want to make sure we're getting this point out there because it's been an area of contention in HCM. It seems to the outside world that there's, there's fights about what you should or shouldn't do. And I have come to the, to the 2024, maybe it was a 23 epiphany that what we were doing in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s was 100% right based on the data that we had to work with. There were sudden deaths in young people. They happened to have HCM. The sudden deaths were related to HCM. We didn't have a lot of protections for them. We didn't have great risk stratification for them. So a lot of these people were, were benched, right? But then we learned and we evolved as we're doing in everything else in HCM. And we can risk stratify those who need to be risk stratified. We can put devices in where they need to be put in. We can offer lifestyle modifications, suggestions, and medications that make it more safe, not completely safe ever because there's never no risk. There's always low risk, but we have evolved to the point where we can have these discussions, mitigate risk, and treat people like individuals. and. For those of you who were previous generation and were told, sit down, you can't exercise, there's a big psychological turnaround we need to do and figure out how to do it safely. But I want to be clear that they weren't wrong. They were right for their time. And we have evolved and we're getting more right as we move forward. So I want to put that conversation to bed. Yeah, I, I think you've said it quite well. I mean, th- th- this is an evolution. We're, we're better at risk stratification than we've ever been. We're better at diagnosis than we've ever been. And that has come from different parts, some from the sports side, some from the HCM side, some from the imaging side, some from the EP side. And, and we now know more than ever before, just like we didn't know who needed a defibrillator years and years ago, but we now have a pretty good idea. Is it perfect? No, it's not. And, and we know that it never will be, as you say, just like there'll never be any perfect therapy. Some people say, I'm on a beta blocker. I feel terrific. Leave me alone. And I say, absolutely. Some people say, I hate beta blockers. Tell me about this new one. Some of them say, I want an alcohol ablation. I'm too scared for surgery. And I say, you're not a good candidate for alcohol ablation. You're a really good candidate for surgery. How do we get you to a more comfortable place? So we've gotten better than ever with regards to sports. I think we have to change this narrative from not ever to better risk stratification. Let's come up with a plan. What's safe for you? And the other part is, 
like everything else in HCM, it's not one size fits all. And it's not one size fits all at 30 compared to 50 compared to 20, right? At 20, your risk may be a different discussion than the 55-year-old young woman who wants to do wants to do Peloton. I'm in. Like, how do we sort that out for you? And then everything in between. Do you have a defibrillator? Do you not have a defibrillator? How can, how can we create this scenario individually for that person? So, as you know, I've never been in the you're wrong and I'm right, or they were wrong and we're now right. This is, thank goodness, an evolution that started with many of the folks who we mentioned earlier mm -hmm. to get us to this level. So this is an evolution of where we've come. And thank goodness they brought this to the forefront along with you and others so that we could all be in a position now to at least have this argument. I love it. I do too. I think we're, oh, thanks Allison. Um, I think what we're, what we're living now is the manifestation of a dream in some ways. We, we've got more tools in the toolbox, they're growing. That means things are gonna get more complicated. Five years from now, I think we're gonna be talking in language like, how is the structure of your genetic therapy clinic looking? Because we don't have those right now. We, right. we did one, like that's it. But I think we're gonna be looking at the disease differently and it's gonna to continue to evolve. So for those of you who think, well, I've got educated in 2023, I'm good to go. You still need to check in. Yeah. We're still learning, we're still evolving, and we try to bring those changes as quickly as possible directly to the patients. And you're going to see a new book issued this year, hopefully. People like Matt and others are hopefully going to be helping. You're going to get an email soon, Matt. Uh, <laughs> the fourth edition of HCM for Patients, Families, and, and Interested Physicians is going to go a little bit differently, and we're going to get some more partners to, to help us to make sure that we're elevating all voices and that we are showing the current understanding of HCM. We've kind of been delayed in it because we're kind of also waiting on the guidelines so we can lean in on those for the writing. So we're, we're gonna start that project real soon. Hopefully by year's end, you'll all have a brand new book in your hands with the latest and greatest, including all the new information on myosin inhibitors. So it's gonna be a busy, exciting year. We're adding to staff, we're adding to centers, and hopefully I have figured out some work-life balance so I'm not working three nights a week anymore. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me to the first one of 2024. This yeah. is actually my first one ever. So I yeah. love being part of, part of the tales. So uh, thanks for including me. Super fun. I love the banter. So uh, thanks for inviting me. We'd love to have you back at a future event. And when you publish, you need to put in your little publishing checklist. Oh, I got to remember to tell Lisa so I go directly to the patients and tell them about this new article. And that's kind of like if we do small snippets, 20, 30 minutes, get them out there. I think those are going to be great little educational nuggets for people in the coming year. So again, if you want to share your story via podcast, we don't do the patient stories live. So you don't have to worry about being live. We can edit things if you say something you choose not to want public, which can happen. So we're going to be filming those offline, editing them and putting them out for for consumption. So remember to share Tales from the Heart and hopefully if you have ideas and people you want to hear from, send us notes and let us know. We want to thank our sponsors and you can get a list of our complete sponsors on our website at 4hcm.org. But special shout out to our large sponsors at Bristol Myers Gibbs, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, BioMarin, Edgewise, 
and Embrya Pharmaceutical, which you're going to hear some new information on them soon, too. So it's going to be an exciting year ahead. Oh, and, and Biz AI is now a sponsor of the HCMA. So we, we got Biz AI on board, too. New people, new names, new organizations, lots to tell you about. And Matt, thanks for joining us for the first podcast of the year. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Bye-bye.